Hi again, everyone. I'm Joan Obra. And I'm Ralph Gaston. And you are listening to Catch Me Up to Speed, the podcast by two reporters turned Hawaiian coffee farmers. And now that we're no longer in the newsroom, we help you deconstruct the news like a journalist and give you the historical context that's missing from the daily grind. So first off, you guys, belated Happy New Year. We've been super busy here, so uh, I can't believe it's already almost the end of February and we haven't put out a podcast episode in 2022. So you haven't heard from us in a while, but maybe you have uh, recognized that we've got new music here. We've got our new podcast music that was produced by Lansky Jones, who's a friend and co-creator of the Mixed Nuts Network. Um, you'll find Mixed Nuts on, oh my gosh, primarily on Clubhouse. Clubhouse, but Lansky's expanding out to a multimedia operation. He's going to have a lot more content on social media, etc. coming up. Oh, okay. All right. Lansky is a well-established media producer, and we're very happy to have his talents on display here. So keep your ears primed for more music drops and other audio enhancements from him. Now, you guys are probably expecting us to dive into the horror of this week, right? This is Putin's invasion of Ukraine. And like you, we've been utterly shocked by the videos and the pictures and, you know, just everything coming out of Eastern Europe. And to be honest, this war is affecting people I personally know. So Ralph and I have a lot to say. But as you all know, we resist hot takes in favor of deeper analysis, so we're going to wait until the next episode for a full discussion of Ukraine. Instead, today's show is a fitting send-off for Black History Month. You know, so often these discussions center around the men of Black American history, like Martin Luther King, Frederick Douglass, Malcolm X, Marcus Garvey, Carter G. Woodson. But what we want to do is make sure we highlight some black women who are integral to our American story. Their stories are important, not just during Black History Month, but all year round. And we have a special guest that's going to help tell some of those stories coming to you now. And we are so happy to be joined by our second featured guest in this podcast history, Courtney Morris. Courtney is currently a project manager at a public media organization and a proud graduate of Howard University. And in her spare time, Courtney produces black history content for social media, as well as transcribing historical documents on a volunteer basis. She also makes history content and helps moderate a Facebook group named Naturally Political. Naturally Political is a space curated particularly for Afro-diasporans where one can discuss history, politics, and other societal issues. Sorry, Courtney, that was a mouthful. You you do a whole lot. Thank you for (laughs) joining us. We wanted to take this time to highlight some exceptional women in American history. And, you know, we say that because while this is Black History Month and a key time to highlight black history, really these women are and should be celebrated in American history for their accomplishments. We're going to start with Ida B. Wells Barnett because we're former journalist, and she's a hero of ours. And Courtney, I know that, you know, Ida B. Wells is best known for bringing the horrific stories of lynchings in the South to a national, really an international audience. But that's just one of many accomplishments of this trailblazing woman. What are some other accomplishments that we should remember her for? Well, I think many people know quite a bit about Wells' work in investigative journalism and around her anti-lynching campaign. I find that far fewer folks know about her activism around segregation and racial discrimination in the public sphere. 
So if you were to ask the average person to give you the first name that they think about when you say the words discrimination and maybe public transportation, the odds are that you'll hear a lot of Rosa Parks's Chances are slim that anyone will say Ida B. Wells, even though it would be applicable and her incident predates Parks's incident by a little over 70 years. So in May of 1884, Wells purchased a ticket for the first class ladies car on the Chesapeake and Ohio Rail, which she had done frequently in the past. The train conductor would accost her and demand that she leave the ladies car and take a seat in the smoking car which had happened several times before as well. She usually just ignored him. After all, she had paid for her seat in the ladies' car. But when she refused on May 4th of 1884, the conductor and two other men physically dragged her out of the ladies' car. She, of course, would write about the incident and publish it in a newspaper, but she would take it a step further. Wells would hire two attorneys, the first of whom would be paid off by the railroad company. But the second attorney would successfully litigate her case. On December 24th of that same year, Wells would receive $500 when the local circuit court ruled in her favor. Three years later, however, the railroad would appeal to the Supreme Court of Tennessee, who ended up reversing the decision made by the local circuit court. Mm. Wells was forced to pay the court fees for the appeal, but she was more disturbed about the precedence this loss was reinforcing. Wells would respond to the decision's reversal by saying, quote, I felt so disappointed because I had hoped such great things from my suit for my people, end quote. But public transportation would not be the only public sphere in which she railed against segregation. In the 1880s, Wells would find work as one of the few 20 Black women working as a teacher in Memphis. Being in Memphis's school system granted Wells a front row seat to the disparities facing Black children and their teachers. She saw that Black schools were consistently poorly funded in comparison to local white schools and that the classroom sizes that the Black teachers were given were unmanageable. She would voice those complaints publicly in the Living Way and the Free Speech and Headlight periodicals. The last straw for the Memphis Board of Education, that is, would be when she publicly wrote about the white school board members giving young black women teaching jobs in exchange for favors. This would cause Wells to be dismissed from her teaching post as a result of that article in 1891. Man, I love this story. Uh, you know, as journalists especially, we're all about truth-telling, right? Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of what we do on this podcast actually kind of gets below the surface of daily journalism to get to some deeper truths. And so that's why she's such an inspiration to me personally. Yeah, and, and what I was thinking about, Courtney, is that the fight for um, equal access to public accommodations was going on far, far before Rosa Parks, as you mentioned. I mean, this Ida B. Wells in the 1880s going up through Plessy versus Ferguson. It's, it's, it is a part of her story that people don't know. Um, thank you so much for bringing it to us. Well, and the other thing is, is that it was so important that she was able to tell her own story, yeah. right? Because we might not have even known about this incident had she not told it herself. That's true. That's very true. So another exemplary woman to highlight today is Fannie Lou Hamer. Again, this is someone we don't learn about in most history books, but someone we should all know. Her life was impacted by so many pivotal periods in our history from the Jim Crow era injustices to the civil rights era of the 1960s. 
Now, she's best known for her work in co-founding the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. But Courtney, I want to talk more with you about the events that led to that seminal part of her life. Can you shed some light on her life story and what led to the formation of the MFDP? Of course. So for the basics, Fannie Lou Hamer was born in Montgomery County, Mississippi. She was the last of 20 babies, a child of sharecroppers born in 1917. Around the age of two, her family would relocate two counties over west to Sunflower County, Mississippi. And here they would work on the W.D. Marlowe Plantation with Fannie joining her family in the cotton fields at the age of six. In her early childhood, she attended a rural subscription school off and on. So if y'all don't know, subscription schools were really popular in the rural South as they allowed parents to only pay for the days their children attended school, which was really cost effective for rural families whose children spent way more time in the field than in the classroom. Hamer would only attend school between picking season up to the age of 12. But in that amount of time, she had become an excellent reader and a superb speller. She would be able to continue to hone her literary skills as she attended Bible study at her local church. And she was eventually promoted to the plantation's time and record keeper due to those literacy skills. She would eventually become a prolific community organizer and civil rights activist undoubtedly due to the environment that she had to navigate in Jim Crow, Mississippi. Don't mention that she was a co-founder of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, and that party was essentially created to challenge the established power of the Mississippi Democratic Party, which at the time only allowed white residents to vote despite the fact that African Americans made up 40% of Mississippi's population. So let's put all of this in context, right? Why was the MFDP, I just made abbreviation for that, even necessary? So we know that the Emancipation Proclamation was announced in 1862 and went into effect January 1st, 1863. Following this mass emancipation, the U.S. would move into the Reconstruction era, which lasted a little over a decade. One of the goals of the Reconstruction was to find a way to integrate the 4 million newly freed African Americans into the American society at large. This would be done in part via a series of Reconstruction amendments that would protect Black Americans' freedom, liberty, and their right to vote. It would be the 15th Amendment, which specifically stated, the right of the citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. So despite the Emancipation Proclamation and the Reconstruction Amendments that passed, Black Americans in the South still found themselves in fairly treacherous waters. Legally speaking, Black American status had changed, but functionally, everything was the same. White Southerners wholly rejected the orders coming down from Congress and sought to stall any and all efforts for African Americans to advance socially, politically, or economically. In response to Reconstruction efforts being passed on the federal level, Southern states started passing Black codes and Jim Crow laws on the local levels. The laws were stringent, effectively chipping away at any autonomy granted to Black Americans via the Reconstruction Amendments. These unfair laws across the South controlled the types of occupations Black Americans could have and limited the types of property they could own. 
They even hindered Black Americans' ability to vote. Various measures were passed to whittle away at the Southern Black electorate. Some of those were literacy tests, which white clerks could pass or fail individuals at whim. Grandfather clauses, which only allowed men to vote whose grandfathers had voted in the past. This criteria nearly impossible for your average descendant of slavery to meet. And then poll taxes, which required citizens to pay a tax annually prior to voting. 11 Southern states had implemented this law. Despite the 15th Amendment protecting the Black man's right to vote, all of the Southern states practiced various forms of extreme voter suppression. One example coming from Hamer's state would be the Mississippi Plan. In 1875, the Mississippi Plan was devised to limit Black voting power in the state. At the time, the Black population was estimated to be over 50%, with various counties being predominantly Black. The Democratic Party, in an attempt to overthrow the Republican Party, used threats of violence, voter suppression, and the purchase of the Black vote in order to regain political control over both the legislature and governor's office. Their plan ended up being successful considering the fact that in Mississippi's 1875 election, the five counties with the largest Black majorities polled only 12, 7, four, two, and zero in votes. The Republican victory by 30,000 votes in 1874 had been completely reversed to a Democratic majority of 30,000 votes in 1875. So these laws and coercive practices are still in place 40 years later when Hamer was born, and they would still be in place as strong as ever when she attempted to register herself to vote in 1962. The consequences for attempting to register to vote in 1962 was steep for Hamer and her family. Not only was she harassed at the courthouse where she attempted to register, but her employer found out and fired her immediately, banning her from the plantation premises. Her husband was unceremoniously fired immediately after crops were harvested, and Marla, the plantation owner, confiscated all of the Hamer's property. This experience, however, would inspire her to get even more involved with the Student Nonviolence Coordinating Committee, also known as SNCC, and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, also known as SCLC. She would teach classes for various SNCC workshops. She also traveled to gather signatures for petitions to attempt to be granted federal resources for the impoverished Black families across the South. She eventually became a field secretary for voter registration and welfare programs for SNCC. You know, Courtney, I'm so glad that you went through all that history as far as Reconstruction goes, because that is a a common topic on our podcast, right? Um, Ralph, I'm trying to remember now, uh, how many episodes have we talked about Reconstruction? Uh, Episodes four (laughs) and five, for sure. Episode two, which was about the history of the Black Right, exactly. And then episode 10 which was about um, Senate procedure, filibustering. Filibustering, yeah. right, yeah. I, I think, yeah, Courtney, we, we really love that you're continuing to build more of a foundation under that Reconstruction era since we share the feeling that it's so integral to what's happened and what is happening in the country right now. Yeah, for sure. And uh, to all our listeners, I would just say, uh, go back and listen to episode two was the black vote, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, Because Courtney's filled in some important information here that we actually didn't cover in Mm -hmm. that episode. 
Uh, you know, the thing that strikes me about this story is that they were just the plantation owner was just able to confiscate all of their property. Mm-hmm. You know, that <laughs> that is is something that is I mean, obviously, it's it's really outrageous. But to hear you actually talk about it in the context, explaining exactly what happened, that that's the part of the story that strikes me the hardest, really. Well, yeah. So for a lot of sharecroppers, and I think I've spoken about this um, once before, but due to um, some of the Jim Crow laws that were prevalent in the South, one was that Black people could only have certain occupations. Those occupations were non-ironically farmer, laborer, servant. And so what that ended up meaning is a lot of people ended up staying on these plantations and working as sharecroppers. And because a lot of these plantations already had homes, these folks who were sharecropping, the planters, were responsible for housing their laborers. And so that is part of the reason why Marlowe could not only take the house, but everything in the house, right? He had an argument that it was all his from the beginning. So when you're sharecropping, you own very little. You own essentially what you pick that doesn't actually go to the farmer or the plantation owner. Her story really highlights not only how hard they had to fight to get rid of Jim Crow, but how long that this was firmly in place 40 years before she was born. And then she's well into her late 30s and 40s before they're even getting a chance to get to the 1964 Democratic Convention when the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party was able to fight to desegregate the Mississippi delegation. And there is a dramatic depiction of that event in the HBO movie All the Way, which is centered around um, Lyndon Johnson and his um, 1964 presidential campaign taking over when uh, President Kennedy was assassinated. So if anyone hasn't seen that movie or seen that portion of the movie, you can find it on HBO. Not a plug for HBO, they're not paying me, but it is there. But anyway... (laughs) Back to Fannie Lou Hamer. She did not stop there. And her vision of an integrated delegation became a reality at the 1968 convention. But she did so much more after that. And that's kind of what I wanted to get to with you now. She created a successful farmer co-op in her final years called the Farmer Freedom Cooperative. And Courtney, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that idea and why she focused so much more on economic development in her later years. Sure. So I kind of feel a bit of shame because I've never seen this HBO movie, but I will be watching immediately after this podcast. Right. So for the Farmer Freedom Cooperative, Hamer created the cooperative in an attempt to alleviate poverty among rural black folks by stimulating economic development. The FFC had three main goals, which were addressing and enriching the nutritional needs of African-Americans, creating access to affordable housing, as well as fostering entrepreneurship opportunities. So in 1969, with the help of Harry Belafonte and a donation of 10,000, she actually purchased 40 acres of land to service the co-op. The cost of membership for the co-op was a buck a month, and the co-op planted soybeans and cotton to pay taxes and administrative expenses. The rest of the land was used to grow cucumbers, peas, beans, squash, collards, all of which was distributed back to those who worked on the co-op. By 1970, the co-op was able to purchase an additional 640 acres for cultivation. In exchange for a few hours of work, families could take home a bushel of produce from the farm. 
the FCC allowed over 1,500 families to feed themselves with the cash crops and vegetables that they grew. The National Council for Negro Women also gave the FFC funds to create what they called a pig bank. The FFC purchased 35 female pigs and five male pigs. And within three years, those 40 pigs have produced thousands of new pigs, which were given to families in need. In addition to food, some 200 families resided on the 680 acres of land owned by the co-op, as the organization provided affordable housing as well. Money was also set aside to help rural Mississippians purchase homes that had running water and heat, which had previously been inaccessible to that demographic. The FFC also included a Head Start program, commercial kitchen, community gardens, and a garment factory that assisted African-Americans who had been fired and or evicted for exercising their right to vote. So if you ask me why she focused more on economic development in her later years, I think it was likely because it was an easier route than attempting to vote in representatives who are willing to implement the policy changes that would ultimately uh, alleviate poor rural people's problems. We should keep in mind that when she attempted to register to vote, she was harassed and turned away at least three times due to failing literacy tests or not having money to pay arbitrary poll taxes. She would end up losing her home and her job for having the audacity to try and vote. She became a victim of extreme police brutality as well as harassment simply for helping and encouraging other Black people to become engaged in the civic process. I feel like after all of that, I would imagine trying to work things out outside the system would be the safest bet. Well, I guess what comes to mind is it's, it's such an incredible story that, that again, is not told well enough in its entirety. Um, from the farmer co-op back to the exercising right to vote, back to learning to read and write in a situation where school was part-time, they had to be in the field, and they were still paying for the school part-time and, and it's such an incredible story. It's such an incredible story for the, the country, and it's telling in some ways that it's not told. Yeah, I mean, several things about this stand out to me. I mean, first of all, can we just cheer Harry Belafonte? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, yes. Okay. I mean, I know this is supposed to be a podcast episode about women, but cheers to Harry Belafonte. Um, so many people, I think, just know him as an entertainer, but man, he had his hands in so many terrific things yeah. as far as the advancement of civil rights for people. Truly. Yeah. Active to this day. So fun fact, he even sent uh, Fannie Lou Hamer and I believe nine other folks to Ghana. And that was a life changing kind of experience for Fannie Lou Hamer. I'm sure for all the others who ended up going to Ghana as well. Wow. Wow. That. Yeah. Awesome. Yes. That's very cool. That's very cool. You know, the other thing that stands out to me here is the increase from 40 acres of land to 640 acres of cultivation. And, you know, Ralph and I, were farmers, right? So we get how hard it is to actually purchase land and not just that, but just to increase it by mm -hmm. that amount. So, Courtney, I don't know if you know, I'm just sort of curious, uh, the 640 acres did they, were they, how did they get the money to do that? Was that um, uh, money that was donated from other folks or was that actually money that they got from selling some of their product? So some of it was money that they got from selling their products. Most of it came from donation because they only had 30 families who could actually pay for the $1 
um, fee to be part of the co-op. And that would be one of the reasons why the co-op would end up failing a little bit later because they simply couldn't sustain the operation. Yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah, that that's too yeah. bad to hear. Um, but yeah, that kind of jump, I mean, again, since with us being farmers, we know what that means, probably yeah. more than the average person. So we remember how earlier when Fannie Lou Hamer registered to vote, unsuccessfully, mind you, the first time it did not work. I think it took three times for her to successfully register. But for that unsuccessful attempt to register the vote, she ended up losing her job and her home because her home was at her job. Yeah. So part of what this co-op did was on some of that land, they actually built homes for their laborers to live. And so the co-op honestly not only provided a job, but it provided a home for so many poor and rural families that they would not lose for attempting to register to vote or civically participating. Oh, that's an important point. So this was something that allowed these folks to try as many times as they need to to register to vote. Yes, yes. Because at that point, they could be turned away for any number of reasons that we've already discussed, but... Mm -hmm that threat of losing a place to live and losing all of their possessions, that was not yeah. held over their head. It's part of the intrinsic fear. And the homes were nicer. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, right? <laughs> exactly. Right? Mm -hmm. And part of the reason why it was so popular, so once again, another Jim Crow rule was um, Black folks were fined for being unemployed. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And so if you're unemployed, you likely cannot pay any fines. And so what would happen is you have these planters and these uh, former enslavers who already have vast tracts of land. They obviously still need laborers. The easiest thing they can do is if you're put in jail, pay for your fine. And in exchange for having your fine paid for, you're back on these same plantations and farms. It all it all ties into each other. And I find the Reconstruction era often is ignored. But when we ignore that, we don't really have a decent understanding of how we went from Emancipation Proclamation 1862 to now, and we're still having these same issues. It's not understood that a lot of this were baked into the laws, and a lot of these laws haven't changed. Yeah, it's the it's the fundamental building block of the fight over America to this day mm -hmm. because it's like yeah, if you're not going to work on the farm you're going to you know a granite mine 30 days you're walking down the street you don't have a job you're vagrant it's yeah. like see the right. judge and the judge has a hook up with the you know with the, with the guy who runs the granite mine or the person who runs the cotton field or, or what have you yeah it was it's a, it's a rough system and it, it leads to the issues people have with law enforcement to this day because it becomes the same thing you have now Private prisons, you got to fill the prison. We, we know where to hunt for our targets. Yeah, the school right. prison pipeline, yep. forced labor. Yeah. Uh, yeah. People get money out of it, kickbacks, private industry. Yeah, there's, there's a reason we focus so much on reconstruction yeah. because it's not really taught well in our schools, mm -hmm. right? But it's so, it's so fundamental. As you were saying, Ralph, it's so fundamental to where we are today. You can't, you can't understand America without understanding reconstruction, I think. Yeah. So while Fannie Lou Hamer was clearing a path through civil rights in her own way, Polly Murray was doing the same, but in the legal world. And now it seems that America is starting to realize the true impact that Murray had in our 20th century history. From feminism to civil rights, from Thurgood Marshall and Charles Houston to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, 
It's Polly Murray's legal mind that has been behind some of the biggest legal victories that have shaped our society. All right, Courtney, with Polly Murray, where the heck do we start? I mean, there's just so much to take on here. There is indeed. Polly Murray wore many a hat, okay? Civil rights activist, an attorney, a legal theorist, feminist, as well as a minister. And similar to Wells and Hamer, she had a history of civil disobedience in the public sphere as she and a friend ignored prompts for them to sit in the black back section of a bus in Petersburg, Virginia. Both she and her friend would be arrested for it and unfortunately convicted with disorderly conduct. Murray was certainly an activist in the same vein as your Martin Luther King Jr.'s and Rosa Parks, but she would be known for the way that she used legal theory to address not only racism, but the sexism that Black women faced on a routine basis. A graduate of the Howard University School of Law, Murray coined the term Jane Crow, which she used to compare the similarities between the negative effects of racist Jim Crow laws and gender oppression on African-American women. In 1950, Murray published States Laws on Race and Color, which examined and critiqued state segregation laws nationwide. Murray argued that civil rights lawyers should challenge state segregation laws constitutionality directly, as opposed to trying to prove the inequality of separate but equal facilities. Thurgood Marshall would praise Murray's book as being the Bible of the civil rights movement and the legal strategies put forward in her book would actually be used in the NAACP arguments in Brown v. Board of Education in 1954. In 1964, Murray would pin a legal memorandum in support of the National Women's Party suggestion to add sex as a protected category to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. A year late, she would publish Jane Crow and the Law, Sex Discrimination in Title VII, which compared discriminatory laws against women to Jim Crow laws of the South. It would be shared with Congress and Lady Bird Johnson, who then gave it to President Lyndon B. Johnson to read. In 1966, she would co-found the National Organization for Women, also known as NOW. NOW was created to lobby for gender equality within the political system. The organization would advocate for the constitutional equality, economic justice, reproductive rights, LGBTQIA plus rights, and racial justice, and against violence against women. You know, I think, I think Murray's the least known of the three of the three folks we've talked about here, right? Um, yeah, I, I would think so. I think because she was um, spoken about by Ruth Bader Ginsburg in her later years and about the, her foundational work, that has, I think, elevated in the last few years. But it is a story that wasn't well told. Yes, definitely. I would say she's the least known of the three women. I would perhaps guess that's because a lot of her work was in legal theory. So I'm not sure your average person would know who the people are behind the scenes, essentially changing laws. You know, when we think of Ida B. Wells and um, Fannie Lou Hamer, they were working using acts of civil disobedience, which not to say that Polly Murray didn't on occasion, but because she went to law school, because she knew legal theory, she was able to create the arguments that were used in Brown v. Board of Education. 
And it seems like it's also the combination of racism and sexism that, that held her back. I mean, she's the legal foundation for these arguments, but Thurgood Marshall's the one who gets to argue it and eventually gets to the Supreme Court, not to take anything away from Thurgood Marshall's brilliance, but Father Murray was held behind by both of those factors, unfairly. And it could have been a little bit um, about her sexuality. So I know initially before she went to law school, she actually applied to a sociology program at UNC Chapel Hill, uh, but she ended up being rejected due to race. And so she was insistent on getting this decision reversed. And so she actually wrote the school's officials, including President Roosevelt, about this injustice. And when they responded, she released them publicly. And so for a minute, the NAACP was contemplating taking her case on, but they ended up balking, citing that the release of the responses could be seen as undiplomatic and unfavorable to her case. But there are some people that actually speculate that the NAACP was also concerned due to rumors about her sexuality when she was younger. So I can see that kind of bleeding in um, to whether we tell her story today, because that's still an issue in 2022. And I, I didn't know that she was co-founder of Now. I mean, I think I think a lot of people know Now, but I didn't realize that she'd co-founded that organization. Yes, she was active in several organizations. She didn't co-found it, but she joined CORE, which is Congress of Racial Equality as well. You know, Courtney, I'm so glad to have you here on our podcast today because I think our listeners can tell just how well-researched you are, right? <laughs> and one of our biggest themes in this podcast is about how we're constantly seeking different sources of information, and in particular, untapped or overlooked sources, because that allows us to tell a greater story and get a better understanding of our history and what lies ahead. So I wanted you to talk uh, a little bit more about how you gather your information. I know um, we've had conversations before about how you use JSTOR, Library of Congress, uh, Project Gutenberg, Etc. And I think I remember um, you telling Ralph and I that in the Facebook group that you run, you actually run a pretty tight ship in terms of the information <laughs> that is able to be discussed there. And we, we love that because uh, it, that that's just, you know, having something that's factually based and historically based obviously leads to better outcomes in the end. So can you tell us, tell us a little bit about your, your philosophy and your methodology for finding out the information that you do? So because I produce a bunch of historical content for my group, um, I like to present content in a way where I'm kind of leading, right? So anything that I put out must be sourced. And not only is it sourced, not only am I saying, hey, this came from this, I actually give them the links, I give them the books, I give them the video, I give them the articles. You don't even have to ask me where it came from because it's automatically in the post. So I am a big fan of JSTOR, mostly because it's so accessible. So prior to the pandemic, you had to pay a nominal fee. But right now you can actually access up to 100 articles a month. And so when I give folks info from JSTOR, I know for a fact that if they're interested, they can make a free account and also access the same article, image, what have you. I'm also a huge fan of Library of Congress due to its accessibility, 
but also because they have kind of amazing exhibits. So right now they actually have the Rosa Parks papers. If you want to go and take a look at those, they're fascinating. Um, I'm a big fan of Internet Archive for the same reason, accessibility. I adore the digital Schomburg. It's one of the best kind of digital um, websites for African and African-American history. Um, and I guess my favorite is actually books. I'm a huge book collector, mm -hmm. but the wonderful thing that I love about books when you have journalists and historians that write these well thought out, well-researched books is by default, they always give you all of the references in the back of the book in the appendix. So I'm constantly actually in the references and the appendix of books that I actually buy for their content, but I can kind of see where they're pulling information and I pull information from there as well. So for all of our listeners, we're going to put links to these different resources in the show notes so that you can check them out. But um, this this is exactly why we wanted Courtney yeah. on the show, <laughs> because, uh, you know, to our listeners, you guys are, are you know, you're, you're along the ride with us and having to figure out what's good information and what's not. And, you know, we're not able to put out podcast episodes every single week. So um, having an entire community and bringing in new voices to tell you what kinds of sources they're using and how they're ferreting out information is actually really important to us. Well, I, I don't know if we're bumping up against time, but since you guys are journalists, do you think you guys have time for one more story of a Black woman journalist? Yes. Do you have time? Yeah. Oh, yeah, please. Go ahead. Okay, so have we heard of Susie Revels Caton? I know you mentioned this to me briefly, but I didn't know much more, so yeah, please. Yeah, I don't know share. her. Okay, now I'm excited. <laughs> okay. So Susie Revels Caton was a journalist, writer, activist, and a prominent leader in Seattle's Black community. And I like this because often, I think I saw a tweet um, last week where they were like, oh, there are Black people in Idaho, there are Black people in Washington. We're everywhere, honey, we're everywhere. <laughs> so Susie Revels Caton was born in 1870 to Phoebe Bass Revels, who was a Black Quaker woman. And Hiram Revels, and if the name Hiram Revels seems familiar, that's actually because he's a prominent minister in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, as well as a teacher and the president of the HBCU Alcorn State University. The same year Susie was born, her father would actually become the first Black senator in U.S. history. Susie would receive an education from the HBCU Russ College, and after graduating, she, like her father, would become a teacher. In 1896, she would move to Seattle, Washington to marry the founder of the fledgling African-American newspaper, the Seattle Republican. The founder's name was Horace Caton. Within her first year in Seattle, she would author several columns that appeared in the Seattle Republican, including news on Booker T. Washington and the Atlanta Compromise speech that he gave at the Atlanta Exposition a few months prior. After a few years of writing with the Seattle Republican, the paper would become extremely successful, much of which Horace Caton attributed to his wife. In 1900, Susie Bevels Caton would become the associate editor for the Seattle Republican, allowing the paper to claim the distinction of being the only paper in the Northwest successfully edited by a Negro. She contributed not only articles to the paper, but editorials as well, and short stories, which resulted in other newspapers, black and white, requesting to publish her pieces as well. 
The paper's success allowed the Catons to become one of the wealthiest and most respected Black families in Seattle by 1903. With the visibility that came from success, Susie decided to turn towards the community and do community outreach and organizing. She routinely planned picnics, dinner parties, balls, and sightseeing trips among those in her community, and then encouraged other women to do the same. She was an active participant in an all-Black group called the Sunday Forum. The Sunday Forum met twice a month to discuss concerns within Black Seattle's community, be they voting rights, employment opportunities, poverty, racial discrimination, etc. Susie also founded the Dorcas Charity Club. This benevolent society was tasked with finding suitable homes for orphan children, providing toys for children, as well as taking care of the expenses for widowed women. Around 1910, things would take a downward turn for Susie and her family. An uptick in racial unrest in Seattle coincided with the decline of the family's newspaper. Advertisers and white subscribers didn't like the fact that the Catons insisted on publishing the accounts of Black lynchings and rapes that were taking place with regularity in the Deep South. It's estimated that between 1890 and 1900, approximately 12,000 uh, 1,200, I apologize, lynchings had taken place. Around the same time, Horace Caton would lose a racial discrimination lawsuit, which he filed after being refused service in a local restaurant. And lastly, the Catons would be forced to move from their beautiful home in Capitol Hill neighborhood as white neighbors began complaining that the Catons' existence there was causing the neighborhood's real estate value to depreciate. On May 13th of 1913, the Seattle Republican would print its last edition. In 1916, the Catons would save up enough money to launch a new newspaper, which they called the Catons Weekly. This paper was aimed at only Black circulation and reported racial injustices happening around the country, but also our accomplishments and our achievements in order to promote a balanced image of ourselves. This paper would run until the late 1920s, ending months after the couple would lose one of their eldest children. Susie had attempted to re-enter the workforce in 1919, but found that to be impossible due to her race and in spite of her being college educated. After a decade of teetering on the edge of poverty with her husband and children, Susie began to start identifying with the working class and the poor of Seattle around and around the age of 67, became an active member within the Communist Party, of which her sons, one of her sons was actually already a member. She would join a local chapter of the West Coast Maritime Labor Movement, with which she would keep a hectic agenda despite her age and declining health. Susie Revels Caton would be an unwavering advocate for progressive politics and communism until her passing in 1943. So I thought that was an important story to tell, not only because of her journalism background, which she shares with you too, as well as Ida B. Wells, but we see some shades of uh, uh, we see some shades of um, Ida B. Wells and Fannie Lou Hamer. Um, and honestly, Polly Murray with her lawsuits with the restaurant, it all strikes a familiar chord. Wow, that is an incredible story. Uh, thank you for sharing that. And, you know, my first question is, do we still have copies of this? Are they on? I, 
back in the day, we used to call it microfiche. And I guess everything's digitized now. But um, is there a repository of uh, their newspapers that we can search through? You know what? I found quite a few newspapers on JSTOR. And I found quite a few newspapers on Library of Congress. I don't know. So, like, I've been able to find clips of newspapers from the New York Times from the early 1900s. I don't know if there's actually a repository for Black newspapers, because we have a bunch of cities that have really prominent um, African-American newspapers. Like, one I can think of is uh, the Afro that runs out of Baltimore. And I believe they've gone digital. But I don't know if there's a repository for all of ours. But I know you should be able to find certain clippings. Okay. Now, and honestly, I was when you were telling her story, especially being in the Pacific Northwest in Seattle, it was making me think about um, number one how a lot of people, when they have a airbrush look at American history, don't realize the pervasiveness of of racism in this country. It's how it was reached. The Pacific Northwest was pervasive in the Northwest and. It also made me think about an episode we did earlier about um, Asian-American history, how there was a story in the mm-hmm. 30s and 40s of Asian-Americans and African-Americans banding together in Seattle to protect housing rights and, and how they work together in, in a small way there. As we were talking about ways that the commu- communities can collaborate and have in the past. Yeah, they worked together in, uh, in the 1930s um, in the Seattle area to preserve interracial marriage. Yeah. Um, and housing rights too. Yeah. And, oh wow. Yeah, yeah. And uh, actually, there were only a handful of states, you know, before the, um, what was it, 1967 or 1968? Now, Loving versus Virginia. Oh. Oh. Okay. Okay. Yes. Is that 67? I'm pretty sure it's 67. Yeah, I think it's I think it's 1967. So yeah, that um that area, Washington. I don't know if it was all of Washington or or the Seattle area that preserved. Um, interracial marriage as, as a result. It was the labor movement. Um, it was uh, uh, um, black folks there, and it was also the Filipinos there because mm. they were trying to create a law that um, banned folks of Malay descent, of which, of which Filipinos were part, from intermarrying with people of other races. Yeah, I forget exactly what year that was. I, I feel like I want to say something like 1934, but I'd have to look that up. That's really interesting. Yeah, and the so what what interests me also about this story is that she they had this initial success, and then in her later years it was that was when the racism caught up with them, um, and so I'm sort of wondering if there was some sort of shift from their earlier success to what happened later on. Like why wasn't she why was she able to to have a certain level of success earlier and then she wasn't able to get a job later. I don't know for a fact, but I think it has something to do with the Great Depression happening around that time and just general um, racial unrest and tension. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing, especially in the in the 1910s when Woodrow Wilson came to the presidency and uh, and put Jim Crow in fully into the federal government. That whole era saw a rise in, in the return of the Klan and, and a lot of uh, increased racial animosity. Then after World War One, when the when the black soldiers came home, there were race riots, the Red Summer, and things like that. So, yeah, but wow. uh, but yeah, thank you for sharing that because that that was uh, I didn't know about her. No, yeah, we have to make we're making room for that for sure. That's going in there. <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. So, Courtney, thank you so much for joining us today. This is really really great. Um, we will hear more from you 
when you do your rooms on Clubhouse. We will look for your Facebook group. And really just thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with, with everyone in our, in our listeners. Thank you for the invite. It's been a pleasure. Wow, what a great, great discussion with Courtney there. That, that was really awesome. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, you know, if you're on Clubhouse, you can find Courtney discussing in the Mixed Nuts Network, Organic Blackness, or Cultural Conversations. Any of those three clubs, that's where Courtney does a lot of exceptional discussions about black history. And that's a wrap on this podcast episode, you guys. But we're already working on the next one and it will have plenty to do with the geopolitics surrounding Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But if you have a question about this episode, or any of our past episodes, please let us know. Drop us a line at hello at catchmeuptospeed.com, and tell us something like, Hey Ralph and Joan, can you catch me up to speed on A, B, or C? And please like and subscribe to the podcast, which you can now find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more of your favorite platforms. And remember to give us a follow, leave a comment, leave a review. We want to hear from you. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram with at CatchMeUpToSpeed. And as always, thank you so much for spending time with us today, you guys. Talk to you again soon.